Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this book. Some would look at this book, Father, and call it a downer. It's a book in which so many bad things happen with God's people over so many years. And certainly, Father, that is not a good thing, and you certainly didn't look at it with pleasure. But nonetheless, Father, you recorded it. You gave it to us. You want us to concern ourselves with it, to consider what it teaches. And I thank you, Father, because there are times in our life when, like the people in this story, in the book of Judges, uh, we, we walk away, we leave behind the things you've given us, we turn to our own desires. And Lord, that's something we all know so well. Thank you, Lord, that you can give us a story about how those things can be put to, to rest in our lives and something better can come from it by your grace. That's what we want to hear today, Father. How do we take the sin in our life and put it to good work again, again to take our lives and put that sin aside and, and go back to work in support of your goals and your desire in our life? Show us how that can be, Father. We thank you and, and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's go to Judges 18. We're continuing through the epilogue in the book of Judges, what I call the epilogue. This is the final five chapters of this book. And in these final five chapters, there are two stories about circumstances that took place in Israel during the time of the 300 years of Judges. And as I mentioned last week, these stories are really important because they explain the heart and the mind of Israel during the time of all these judges we've been studying all along through this book, of how Israel turned to idolatry and how the tribes were breaking apart under the weight of all their sin, what was going on behind the scenes, in other words. And as I tried to explain last week, part three of this three-part epilogue is not found in the book of Judges. It's outside the book of Judges in the book of Ruth, which follows immediately after Judges. Ruth is the good news story that comes on the end of what is otherwise a pretty bad book. In fact, without Ruth, the history of Judges would leave us with little hope that the nation of Israel has a future. Wouldn't you agree? Because if you think back to everything we've studied in the book of Judges, everything we've read, so far anyway, would seem to point to Israel self-destructing. It's been from bad to worse as we've moved through various Judges. And then you're going to have, at the end of this story, two accounts in this epilogue, as I call it, that only serve to reinforce that conclusion. Because, friends, these two stories aren't any better. They're, they're telling more of the same about what was going on in the nation. And then you have the story of Ruth. Ruth is the story that gives us hope that even in the midst of all this sin, the Lord has a plan to redeem his people from their circumstances. So after we study the two stories that make up the last five chapters of Judges, then we're going to go directly into the story of Ruth, as I said last week. And then we'll get to see, hopefully, a positive end to what has otherwise been just a very miserable trek through the history of this period. But for now, we're just getting started in this epilogue. So last week we began in chapter 17, the first of these two stories. And this is a story centered on a man called Micah, that Ephraimite. Remember, he's the godless man who stole a fortune from his own mother. And then in that bizarre twist of circumstances, his mother blesses him when she discovers he was the one who stole the money from her, showing how this culture has become one in which sin is declared to be good. A key indicator that you're headed in the wrong direction. But then even worse than all of that, as we ended last week, we see Micah setting up his own personal religious system in his home. A system that he patterned after worship of Yahweh, but it was a counterfeit from top to bottom. And he contrived this system not to serve God, far from it. It was contrived to suit his own pride, his own ego. And then we concluded that Micah was really just seeking 
to affirm or worship himself, not to give true worship to the living God. And that's where we ended at the end of chapter 17. At that point, we have Micah with this temple of his own making in his home. He had secured the services of that Levite to serve as his personal priest. And he was basically operating an illegitimate house of worship in place of worshiping God according to the scriptures, according to what the Lord's word said. And now what we learn today as we move into chapter 18 is Micah's idolatry will mix with the sin of another tribe, the tribe of the Danites, and together they're going to infect the whole northern corner of Israel with apostasy. Let's move into that. Chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king of Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites were seeking an inheritance for themselves to live in, for until that day an inheritance had not been allotted to them as a possession among the tribes of Israel. So the sons of Dan sent from their family five men out of their whole number, valiant men from Zorah and Eshtal, to spy out the land and search it. And they said to them, Go search the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and lodged there. When they were near the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young man, the Levite. And they turned aside there and said to him, Who brought you here? And what are you doing in this place? And what do you have here? He said to them, Thus and so has Micah done to me, and he has hired me, and I have become his priest. They said to him, Inquire of God, please, that we may know whether our way on which we are going will be prosperous. The priest said to them, Go in peace. Your way in which you are going has the Lord's approval. All right, right from the start, in chapter 18, you can see trouble coming because you see Samuel begin with that characteristic statement, there was no king in these days. This is Samuel's way of reminding us that there's no central guiding force among the people guarding their hearts and demanding their obedience. This is going back to the old phrase we've seen so often now, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Yes, we have judges ruling like we've been studying, but remember, judges, they're just local leaders spiritually weak and often mired in sin themselves. We've seen that now from man to man. So when you have a people who are intent on doing what is right in their own eyes and now without a king or governing force to guide them, there is no governor on sin. At this point, they're as bad as they want to be and they want to be pretty bad. So this is just another way for Samuel to say, watch out, look what's coming next with the tribe of Dan. We hear in verse 1, that the tribe of Dan is seeking a place to live in the land. Now, we're talking here about an inheritance among the tribes in the land of Canaan. The thing God gave to the nation of Israel that he said to Abraham would be for the descendants to own this portion of the land. We said last week that this story is likely set in the latter half of the overall time of Judges, during probably the time of Samson. That was the time when the Philistines were at their strongest, when they're pressuring Israel. If you can imagine a map of Israel in your mind, or if you generally have an idea of how Israel looks, then you know in the western half of the land, it's coastal plain. It goes all the way down to the Mediterranean Sea. The eastern half is mountainous. And so between the two, you have that hill country that transitions from one to the next. The Philistines occupied the coastal plain, principally the southern half of the coastal plain. That was their territory in that day. And they were pressuring the western side of the tribes of Israel. Those tribes that lived in that western half were the ones who were most directly contending with the Philistines. And they were fighting over that land. That was the place Samson was supposed to go and free Israel from the oppression of the Philistines. It was those tribes specifically that he was supposed to help the most. But as we've studied, 
Samson didn't do it. He didn't press the attack against the Philistines. So what happened as a result was the Philistines were successful in forcing the western tribes of Israel to migrate out of the land that had been given to them, to retreat up into the hill country, away from the Philistines. One of the tribes in that situation was, you guessed it, Dan, the tribe of Dan. So when the Israelites first came in under Joshua, into Canaan, this land was given to Dan. Dan was assigned the western portion in the land of Canaan. And specifically, their portion is bordered on the west by the Mediterranean Sea. And then their territory looks almost like an oven mitt, a left-handed oven mitt, with Ephraim kind of digging in around the thumb, and then Benjamin off to the right, and then Judah all below them. But that all is the place where you find Philistines. So Dan's territory lay directly in the disputed area where Jews and Philistines had battled for control now for hundreds of years. Since Samson didn't defeat the Philistines, Dan now has decided they need to find another place for their inheritance. They said the inheritance in the land here has not been given to them, or it says the inheritance for the tribe of Dan had not been allotted to them. Some misunderstand that. I've seen some commentary that believes that this means this whole scene took place back before Joshua gave them the land. As in to say, this is before that land was assigned to the tribe of Dan. But that's not what it means. The word allotted in Hebrew can also be translated knocked down or laid waste. So another way to say it is the inheritance of the Danites had been given, but it hadn't yet been conquered. Laid waste, opposition put aside, in other words. So in this day, the Danites set out looking for greener pastures. They have determined, apparently, that the only way they're going to find peace in the land that God gave them is by taking matters into their own hands, abandoning the land that God assigned to the Danites, and taking some other land for themselves instead, which of course means, where are they going to get this other land? They're going to have to take it from some other tribe. That's all that they have option to do. It's a faithless act committed in fear and in pride. Not in obedience to God, not in trust to God. So that's where we start now in chapter 18. Another tribe, now the Danites, running away from what God had allotted them in the land, prepared to reject his provision and make an illegitimate claim somewhere else in the land. In much the way Micah has been behaving, right? Micah rejected true worship for something false. The Danites are rejecting the true provision of God for something illegitimate that they can do on their own. That's assuming they can find something better. Now, the plan begins with the tribe sending out a scouting party. They pick five guys, they're called valiant men, and they're told, go find a better place for us. They move up from Zorah and Eshtaol. Now, those are towns in the western coastal plain, right in the hill country, right as you come up from the, uh, the coastal plains into the hill country. If you recognize those names at all, it would be because that's the same area that Samson grew up. They're coming out of Samson's backyard which I think is a way of Samuel reminding us that if Samson had done his job, we wouldn't be in this situation. But moving on, as the circumstances have it, the spies find their way to the house of Micah. Now these two stories start to merge, and that's the point. This is all still the first of our three stories in the epilogue. And they merge at this point. You have these Danites wandering in to Micah's home now in Ephraim. And as they spend some time at his home, they hear, we're told, this distinctive voice of a Levite who is staying with Micah. Now, why do they know this guy's voice? Well, it's not because they know him personally. They recognize his accent. It would be as if all the Levites had a southern accent and they're the only ones who did, 
right? I'm sure they had a different accent. My point is, you can always tell someone's from the South if you hear their accent. These guys are not in typical Levite territory. So they're wondering, why is there a Levite stuck all the way out? It'd be like running into uh, someone with a Southern accent in Manhattan. What brought you up here, right? They stand out like a sore thumb. But that in itself is something important in the story. It confirms for us something we studied earlier in this same book. And that is that the unity of the tribes of Israel is evaporating to the point now where you have language beginning to differ and dialect, if you will, or accent at the very least, beginning to separate one from another. That's one of the first signs that you'll see in culture that there's a division happening when language changes. Now, when they hear the voice, they say, why are you staying around here? What's up? Specifically, they want to know what business would a priest have in this place? Because they know you're a long way from Shiloh. Shiloh, by the way, is where the tabernacle was in this day. That's where they'd expect to find priests. The Levite, in response, he just summarizes how he got to this place. He says, well, I got a good deal. I found work. That this man, Micah, has hired me to be his personal priest. That's what they were told. Now, have you ever heard someone explain something to you? Some new idea, some new invention, something you just hadn't heard of before. When you see an idea that's so radical and so revolutionary, and yet at the same time, it's so obvious once you've been told of the idea, that's the thing where everyone goes, aha, brilliant. Why didn't I think of that? You ever had one of those moments? Like the first time you heard somebody was bottling water. Remember that years ago? If you were smart, you didn't say to yourself what I said. What I said was, who in their right mind would ever pay money for a plastic bottle of water? If you'd been smart, you would have thought, pure genius, everyone needs water. I'll just sell it to them instead of letting them get it for free out of their tap. Brilliant idea. Well, that, I think, is what was running through the minds of these Danites when they first heard that a Levite could be hired as a personal priest. They never thought of that before. And they were thinking to themselves, why didn't I think of that? Personal priests? What a brilliant idea. Why go all the way to Shiloh? Why deal with all of that rigmarole? Just bring a guy into your house. God's there with you now. It's so much simpler. I'm almost certain that was their reaction. And the reason I say that is because of their response. Now, in this case, by the way, I want to be clear. In this case, this is not a brilliant idea, right? I'm making fun of it. This is a terrible idea. This is a sinful, rebellious, idolatrous idea. But in these men's hearts, it took hold. And from this point forward, men in Israel began to accept that a person could establish their own path to God. They could have idols. They could have priests. They could even have their own temples. And before this chapter is done, you're going to see that whole thinking play out. This is an example of sin Spreading, You know, Paul says in Romans that, that we all know death because sin came to all because it spread to all. He uses that term, sin spread to all. When we take missteps of our own, sin in other words, in following God, we may not be the only ones who suffer. And I think often we forget the fact that our sin has consequences beyond our understanding. We may be the seed that causes sin to spread, to sprout somewhere else in the lives of those people we influence. And even if we should choose at some point to repent and retreat from our own sin, who knows where our sin may travel without us? Because, friends, you don't have control over the consequences of your sin, even as you may choose to retreat from your own. The sin of Micah here, for example, is about to travel a long way without him because of the influence he had on a group of Danites. 
who themselves were moving in sin, of course. But these two come together now and mixed in a very powerful cocktail. Notice what happens next in verse 5. These Danites, upon hearing that this guy is working as a priest in this man's house, they inquire of the priests, so-called priests here, concerning the will of God. Now, friends, remember, this guy is not a priest. I'm using the term because the term is in the book, but that's not because we're endorsing it. This guy is just a Levite. The only reason he's being called a priest at this point is because Micah has consecrated him, so to speak, as his personal priest. That's like someone calling you their personal superman. You can use the term, right? They might give you the title, but I don't recommend you try to stop a bullet or jump off a tall building because you're going to find out that the title was worthless. It was just given to you by somebody. Similarly, you got a guy here walking around, walking the part, talking the part, but he is not the part. He's not a priest. Remember from our study years ago of Hebrews that a priest is an intercessor. They stand between two, a higher authority and a lower authority. And particularly in the case of priesthood, we're talking about God as the higher authority, men as the lower. And there is a need to have an intercessor. Now, before Christ's appearing, the intercessor God provided to the nation of Israel was the priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood. And yet, that still required that they be consecrated a certain way in a certain place under certain terms in order for God to recognize their authority. For friends, if the one you assign as your intercessor to God is not recognized by God, what good is that intercessor? That's why we would say today there is no one who stands between us and the Father but Christ. He is the intercessor for all. There is no second choice. You cannot choose a human priest. There's no one else God in heaven recognizes. No one comes to the Father but through Christ, according to Scripture. Now, in this day, of course, this man, thinking himself an intercessor when he's not, notice how quickly, first of all, these Danites embrace him as if he is truly their representative. They ask him, inquire of God concerning the future of our journey. The true ephod, worn by the true high priest of Israel, that elaborate, think of it like a vest-like robe that was worn as part of the the garments that the high priest was required to have, part of that outfit was a pouch, which was right in front here. And in that pouch, there were two very special stones, the Urim and Thummim, they're called. We don't know exactly what they look like. We're not exactly sure how they worked. We know that in the law, though, God gave these stones to the nation of Israel for use by the high priest in discerning the will of God. And the way these stones worked, generally speaking, was that the priest could form a question of God in the form of a yes or no question. And then these stones were thrown like lots. And somehow, as they did what they did, they indicated from God an answer to the question. And God manipulated the outcome to give the answer he wanted them to know. It was supernatural. It wasn't betting. It wasn't luck. It was the way God told Israel he would speak to the high priest when there was a question posed in front of him. I believe what's happening right here is the make-believe ephod on the make-believe priest of Micah is in the minds of these Danites when they say, inquire of God. I see you have an ephod there. Why don't you pull out the stones and ask a question? And you notice the Danites ask a yes-no question. Will we be blessed? Will we find what we want? And then the priest, apparently, the so-called priest, he's only too happy to comply. He does whatever he does, whatever that looks like in his counterfeit way. And then he gives them the answer that he knows they want to hear, which is that God is blessing their journey. You're approved by God. Now, this whole scene, and you can tell, I mean, I haven't made it a secret, right? This whole scene is a charade. There's nothing legitimate about all of it. It's all man-made religion. It in some ways reminds me of the tale of the emperor's new clothes. 
We've all generally heard this story, right? Hans Christian Andersen's little fable. But the details of it matter in this case. In that story, you have two weavers who promise to make a king, an emperor, a new set of clothes. And they tell the emperor, there's one thing about these clothes that you need to know. They're going to appear invisible to anyone who is stupid and incompetent. And the weavers, as you probably know, they never make anything. They just take the money of the emperor and never deliver him anything. They pretend to deliver him a set of clothes. But they know that because there's nothing actually there, everyone who looks at this so-called set of clothes and sees nothing will be realizing in their mind that they are stupid and incompetent. And because no one, of course, will want to have that exposed, they're all going to play along and pretend that they see clothes that aren't really there because they don't want to be shown to be stupid. And even the emperor himself plays along with the, with the whole gig because he walks out in public, butt naked, <laughs> thinking he's wearing clothes because he can't admit that he doesn't see them. It takes a, a young boy to point out the obvious that the emperor has no clothes, which is the point of the story here. That's what's going on here. Micah, the Levite, the Danites, they know that this is not the actual ephod. No one's confused on that point, I assure you. They know that these are not the actual stones because they know the real ones are right back in the tabernacle where they belong, right? If they weren't there, it would have been a big scandal. They know that Micah's house is not the tabernacle. The Levite knows he's not truly a priest. He knows he doesn't have the actual stone. I mean, nobody here is fooled about anything that's going on, and yet they all play along. They're all pretending. But they're pretending with sincerity. This is not a game. They are asking for a blessing before they go on a pretty dangerous mission. And when he responds with an answer, everybody just goes with the farce and assumes that this is truly from God. This is exactly how false religion works all the time. It's this mental assent to the insanity of a pretend process for a desire, a selfish desire to be affirmed. And notice how it's crept into even the Christianity of late with the prosperity gospels and all the rest, right? What's false comes in selling you something that makes you feel good. You don't have to worry about that here, do you? <laughs> Micah feels the satisfaction of seeing his little drive through tabernacle being legitimized by the Danites' visit. That's his affirmation. What do the Danites get? Well, they receive affirmation for their decision to abandon the Lord's provision. Ah, the Lord said he's blessing us for walking away from what he gave us. Oh, that's great. We were a little worried about that. And the Levite. The Levite takes pride, I assume, in being recognized as a legitimate representative of the Lord. Right? He can stand a little taller and walk around here with a little more pride. It's all pride. As Solomon says, it's all vanity. Everyone's getting what they want. Well, everyone except the Lord. He's not getting what he wants in any of this, is he? That's what happens when people seek to please themselves. They may achieve some limited benefit in their practice of religion, but that benefit is strictly for the flesh. It's not benefiting the soul, certainly not benefiting the Lord. It's not benefiting the relationship with the Lord. He's not honored by it. He's not pleased by it. That's why the Bible says the Lord does not hear the prayers of the unbeliever, as you may have heard me say here in the past. The scriptures say plainly, he does not hear prayer except by those who pray to Jesus in faith, knowing him as Lord. Because he's not impressed with our piety. He's not persuaded by our sincerity. These men were speaking of God and acting as if they served him, and yet they weren't. They were just serving themselves. 
They were doing entirely what they wanted to do in their own self-deceived minds. God was nowhere to be found in any of this nonsense. And he's not blessing it, and he's not participating with it. That's the chief concern of this first of our, of our three stories. That's the, sort of the nut of this whole episode. True worship of Yahweh is at risk in Israel at this point. The people, as represented by these characters, are drifting spiritually, and they're willing to make things up as they go. And come up with an entirely new system. Where do you think this goes if it's left unchecked? I mean, do you think it self-corrects? Do you think they wake up one day and decide, you know, we really haven't been doing the right thing. Let's start over and go back to square one. No, that's not how it works. And it's going to be easy to see as you look at the rest of the chapter. We'll just go a few steps forward in it today. Look at verse 7. Then the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were in it living in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure, For there was no ruler humiliating them for anything in the land. And they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. When they came back to their brothers at Zor and Eshtol, their brothers said to them, What do you report? And they said, Arise, let us go up against them. For we have seen the land, and behold, it is very good. And will you sit still? Do not delay to go, to enter, to possess the land. When you enter, you will come to a secure people with a spacious land. For God has given it into your hand, a place where there's no lack of anything that is on the earth. So they go up from Ephraim, having been, quote, blessed by the priest. The men head about, on a map, about 100 miles due north. They eventually reach a little town called Laish. Laish is a quiet place, you're told here, isolated, beautiful. This is a Canaanite town. It sits at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's in a beautiful valley. You can still visit it today. I visited it last summer. It is a gorgeous, fertile area, very, very northern tip of Israel. And unlike most Canaanite cities in that day, it wasn't defended by a large wall, which was traditional. So it was very vulnerable to attack. They probably didn't think they needed it. They didn't have any enemies up there. No one ever came up and saw them. They were just isolated up there. So the spies, after they see this place, they realize, taking this city from the Canaanites, this would not be hard. And this is a nice place. So that becomes their plan. They go back. They report, as you saw. And they begin to argue amongst their countrymen. This is the place God has for us. This is where we're supposed to go. And they argue based on three advantages. They say, first, it's spacious. It's secure. Secondly, it's the place the Lord is giving to us. Did you notice that? They argue this is the Lord's provision for them. Finally, they say it's fertile land. It's got everything they need. I want you to notice, though, what really attracts them to this region. I think more than any of those reasons. It's actually listed in verse 7. They remark, this region is free from authorities that might harass us. In other words, I think they're referring both to the Philistines, but I wonder if they're also referring to the judges of Israel. They're excited at the prospect, no one's going to tell us what to do. We become our own people, isolated and secure. If I'm right, you're peering into the heart of these people. They aren't going to bow their knee to anyone. Much like Micah, the Danites would rather make up their own rules than follow the word of God. And even though the Lord had assigned them a place, they were going to go find their own place and call it the place God had given them. In fact, they disobeyed the Lord's command and lived among the Canaanites and the Philistines up until this point, instead of doing what God had called them to do when Joshua led them. Because if they had done that, they wouldn't be in this situation at all. You remember what Joshua told the people, right? Joshua said, go up, take the land. The Lord has given it into your hands. Defeat, run off the people. This is not their land anymore. It is now your land. And the Danites did nothing with respect to those commands. 
Ironically, they're essentially repeating Joshua's command to themselves now when they see Laish as their target. So they're willing to do it now when they weren't willing to do it earlier. It's not though the Danites couldn't have done it. Look what comes next, verse 11. Then from the family of the Danites, from Zorar and from Eshtal, 600 men armed with weapons of war set out. They went up and camped at Kiriath-Jerim in Judah. Therefore, they call that place Mahanadan to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath-Jerim. They passed from there to the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. If they had taken even just a modest effort like this, who knows what they could have accomplished in driving off the Philistines from their existing land. Because if God had been in it, they don't need more than, well, Gideon used 300 people who didn't even have war weapons with them, right? They've got 600 with weapons of war. By the way, what does the number six in Scripture generally stand for? Sinful men, fallen men. Here you see an example of that at work. So if the Danites had wanted to have the land they claimed they need, they were never further away from it than simply obeying God to take up the arms that they had against those people who were already in their land. But rather than do that, they would rather retreat, search for new land, take it from some other group against the will of God, and do it all with the same effort, actually more effort than would have been required to do it in their own backyard. Keep in mind, they've calculated that this town could be taken because the town wasn't defended well, and they had the power, they had the strength to defeat it. But friends, they're working without God in this case. What would they have done if they had had that same intent working within their own backyard with God? You can see how they're making every decision according to what is right in their own eyes. They aren't relying on the word of God. They don't trust the Lord to keep his promises. They're just seeing the world merely as men see it. That's inevitably the result of walking away from the Lord. Because either you abide with Christ in his will, in his word, and as a result, see the world with his eyes, work within his will, and accomplish what he's willing to do through you. Or, you live in the flesh, you move away from him, you seek to engage in evil deeds, and you do it in your own strength, to your own condemnation, ultimately. Paul taught this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, verse 21, Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet now he has reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. We all begin alienated from God. He's here. We're a long way away. We're infinitely far away. Secondly, we are hostile in mind. We are literally an enemy of God. We are hostile to what he likes. We are hostile to what he wants. We are hostile to the concept of submitting to his authority. We're hostile to everything he holds and values. And then lastly, Paul says we were engaged in evil deeds. The product of your mind is the work of your flesh. So we live in ways that are opposite of what God expects. Paul says that's who we were. Now because of Christ we've been reconciled. Why? To reverse all those things. To live in holiness, blamelessly, and beyond reproach. The nation of Israel was to be like that as a result of God's revelation of himself to them through the prophets. These tribes, Dan now and before that Ephraim, have demonstrated through these examples that they are choosing to pitch God aside and go back to the alienation, go back to the hostility. Going forward, the army, as you notice, doesn't go straight up to Lahish. They actually reroute their way the way the spies went originally so that they would stop at Micah's house. Now, if you look on a map, there's no logical reason to go from where Dan is in the hill country through Micah's home to get to Laish. If their goal was to go straight to Laish, there's a much faster route. 
They'd just go up the Jezreel Valley. They wouldn't have to cross any mountains. They wouldn't have to go up any foothills. It's a nice, smooth, slow, easy, steady pace right up to the valley in which this town lives. But why do they go, do you think, back to Micah? Why even go back there? Could it have been that they decided that Micah's priest was the one responsible for leading them into that perfect city and they needed to return to claim their lucky charm and take him with them? That's exactly what you're going to see next time. As we end the first part of our epilogue, you're going to see the sin of Micah and Dan conspiring now to bring idolatry to an entire tribe and to the northern region of Israel. Because a little sin will ultimately lead to bigger sin. And big sin ultimately leads to us finding new gods in ourselves or in others. And that's what's happening. So we'll have to see how the Lord responds. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Father, for the reminders. This has been a a long and difficult study through the book of Judges, Father, because it would seem week after week we're reminded of the descent of Israel, the sin and the difficulty they have put upon you and themselves. We're searching, Father, for a ray of hope. We're overdue, Father, for something positive, something to remind us that there's a good ending to this story. And we know it's coming, Father. Let us concern ourselves, though, with the lessons that are there for now, patiently waiting for the solution you bring ultimately. But not overlooking, Father, the fact that so often our lives look more like judges than it does like the story of Ruth. Thank you, Lord, for the reminder. Send us away from here. Encouraged, if nothing else, Father, in the fact that all our sin has been paid for by Christ on the cross. We thank you for that most of all. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.